Welcome to Outside the 9 to 5. I don't know what that just was, but this is Kevin Hartnett. And I'm Colton Richards. And you're listening to the Outside the 9 to 5 podcast. A show where we discuss the challenges we face on a day-to-day basis with our careers, relationships, and fitness and nutrition. We'd like to keep it light as we discuss some of the life battles we, and I'm sure some of you, deal with on a daily basis. So sit down, strap in, and enjoy the ride. No, no, no. Didn't me? The prima donna over there had to start a little bit later, you know? Uh, just so you know we used to just start it when people were in the studio we just used to start it they would have no idea Um, and in an ideal world I would have had everything that you just said kind of on the podcast but with that we're we're honestly just going to get straight into it I'm going to level set what this is going to be like because it is our first kind of thing with a, a virtual interview um and then I'll open it up for a question and we'll just ease into it. I'm good. All right. Welcome back to Outside the 9 to 5. We've been ripping and roaring through what is a phenomenal 2022 already. Uh, this is episode 79 or, yep, 79 of Outside the 9 to 5. It is going to be a guest episode and I do want to level set something for the audience here. It's our first virtual interview. Uh, so there might be some bumps and bruises. <laughs> Kevin's laughing a little bit. There might First be some... interview in the metaverse, dude, in the metaverse. <laughs> dude, I mean, eventually we could be doing this in the metaverse, depending on what Zuckerberg rolls out here for us. But um, we're really excited to have this guest. I'm going to introduce him. Uh, and Kevin and I are just basically going to share different aspects of the interview is essentially how it's going to break out. So he is someone that relentlessly pursues his goals, regardless of the obstacle. Someone that is in pursuit of the best version of himself in all areas of life with an intensity I'm not sure many others exude. Candidly, I've never seen any other person exude it to the level he does um, and has experienced a life-changing event that has shaped his worldview on what's important and how precious our time on this journey really is. We're excited. Welcome to the show, my dear friend, Adam Holes. Oh, yeah. Give it up. <laughs> give it up. Give it up. Thanks for having me, guys. We appreciate you being here, dude. And uh, sorry for pushing it back 30 minutes. I know. Yeah, it can no be a little... yeah you had a, you had a good reason to, I mean, you ran a marathon today. I think you have a good. <laughs> What's more important in Colton's life than food. Come on. Come oh on my God. Come yeah, on. dude. I, I had 12 wings to fuel up for this podcast. I'm energized, ready to go. Um, so dude, I know we're going to spend a lot of time on like the mental and physical aspects of life. I think that's something you, I, and Kev share a lot in common on, but I do want to kind of start with taking it back a little bit. Just give me a little bit about your upbringing. I mean, you, you kind of already did before we started recording, but who, like who, how did you develop into this Adam holes? That is 25, right? You're not 26 yet. I'm 25 still. Yeah. 25. So I like maybe bring it back to when you were abroad growing up. Like, I mean, how would you kind of characterize your upbringing in the earlier stage of your life? Yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. I grew up in a town called Wayne PA, which is not too far from Colton. I know where you grew up and yeah. uh, lived there for the majority of my life, except when I was in middle school, my father was relocated to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates for his job. And as a result, my family moved to the Middle East for three years, and um, which was a very, to us, I mean, we were 
excited about it, but to many, a lot of people thought we were crazy or my family was crazy because it was post 9-11. A lot of people associated that area oh. with Saudi and Iraq and um, some of the other more volatile parts of that region. And um, I mean, looking back on it now, it was one of the most profound experiences of my life and something I know my entire family is very grateful for. And uh, I mean, most importantly, I think it made me be receptive and open to change and understand that people are different. Um, not everyone is someone is, is a white male who lives and grows up on the main line and can go to good a good public high school and will probably get into the college that he or she wants to get into um, and hopefully get a good job. Uh, you know, I Dubai is known for, especially at that time while it was booming, it was known for its opulence and still is. And I mean, I remember the first day of third grade, the first day of school in Dubai, <laughs> I saw someone who I later found out to be my classmate being chauffeured to middle school and getting dropped off in a stretch Rolls Royce. And I, I mean, we didn't see those cars in outside of the Philly area. And I mean, like occasionally maybe, but I just knew that that wasn't normal or what normal was back home in the States. And I mean, every car there would be, oh, not every car, but a Lamborghini, Ferrari, Porsche. Like you would, you don't even turn your heads at, like you, it becomes so normal after a while. It, it was, it was strange. Um, and then on the complete opposite end of that spectrum, we saw laborers from other countries come to Dubai, work construction jobs for minimum wage, work 12 plus hours a day, go home or get crammed in these non-air conditioned buses and get sent to a, yeah, a group home where they would live and um, you know sleep six guys to a small little room. And they would send every cent they made back home so they could support their families who weren't with them. And seeing that dichotomy was, was powerful because you know, it was in the same place. It was right across town. It just depended where you were at that given moment. And Dubai was an awesome experience and something I'm very thankful for. And I would love to go back one day, but that was certainly an experience that I had a hard time. I didn't have a hard time talking about, but it's a little different than moving to a different state than some people do or across town and changing school districts. It was, I mean, I experienced culture shock um, as my entire family did. So the, the thing I hear you saying, and it, it's interesting to me, at least this is what I picked up on with everything you said, like 
it's incredible how reflective you are in that period that was, if I heard you correctly, third grade. Dude, like I, I was concerned with hoagies and maybe playing some sports and you're in the Middle East where McLaren's getting laughed at down the street. Like it's interesting um, how much your worldview can be shaped by that. So, I mean, what do you think? What, what makes you reflective about that period? Like, I don't even know if I would have blinked twice because I was so young. Well, it was hard to fit in originally. I went to an American school everyone spoke English, not everyone spoke English well, but my classmates were from all over the world. And um, a lot of people, didn't, most people didn't look like me. I mean, yes, yeah. there were Americans, but um, I remember that same day, shortly after I saw that, that kid being chauffeured in in the stretch rolls, I, walked into the atrium or the yeah the atrium I guess is what you would call it and they had the school had flags of each nationality that was represented at the school and I like I had never seen so many flags in my life I didn't know what that was and it was just I mean there were what seemed like most countries of the world represented at, at that school and um, I wanted to fit in. It was hard in the beginning to make friends, or I thought it would be hard in the beginning to make friends because not everyone was, again, a, a white-faced, brown-haired, freckle-faced boy with blue eyes and liked playing baseball and followed the Cubs. And, you know, like people were different. A lot of my friends at recess would play soccer and I, would just my my fifth grade teacher he was from wisconsin he loved the packers and uh nobody else wanted to play football so he would just throw hail mary passes at recess and i would be I would be the receiver and that's what we would do with a couple other americans who were interested in that and uh eventually i mean i i took on to soccer and other activities i got really into skateboarding which was really popular there um but I think it was just the the difference, the the differences between the students and the people in Dubai that made me so reflective. And almost credit to your parents, dude. Like I'm sure it was a tough decision for them at the time, but I bet, I mean, based on the person I know you are, you probably, and you mentioned it on this podcast, like appreciate that experience. Like how many people do you know our age that's done uh, that have had that zero i mean i uh i'm certainly set for like a fun fact for the rest of my life like whenever yeah. that comes up in, <laughs> in in business meetings uh or you need an icebreaker that's always my go-to and i give my parents a lot of credit i mean it was i couldn't imagine like being in the height of i mean my dad was probably in the height of his career and um yeah, just made such a crazy jump to do that. I know, and that, and looking back now, like I've had this conversation with my parents since, uh, just like what prompted you to make the move to Dubai? Because he had had other job opportunities. And so I had my mom, um, not necessarily, I think, yeah, even some abroad, uh, but probably not that abroad. And uh, he said the same thing. He's like, we wanted you to know that not everyone's like you. And that's stuck with me. 
Wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, that's abroad abroad. Yeah. You're, you're telling me, especially at that time period. I mean, yeah, that's 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 wild. Something that kind of sticks out to me. I mean, that's a crazy family move to make. I mean, I'm sure each one of you know, you, your brother, each of your parents had their own respective culture shocks that they were going through at that time. How as a family unit did you guys all stay together and how did that, how, I guess, how did that affect you as a, as a unit? And I guess, how did your parents looking back on it, keep everything together? Cause that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of moving parts going on. Going yeah. On there. Um, well, it was tough, especially in the summer, in the summers during that period, because my dad, so my, my mom, my brother and I, every summer came home uh, once the school year ended and my dad who was still based in Dubai for work would stay there in the summer for those couple months and work. And, and then we went back after the summers, after we were we would come back, I'm sorry, we would come back to um, Wayne PA for the summer. And so we would still spend a couple months every year back at home, which was really nice. Um, but I know it was really tough, especially on my dad, because he would be, so you would be in Dubai alone. And uh, at the same time, I mean, that, that period is, brings back some, all, some tough memories for a different reason, because during that time, my mom had, was diagnosed with cancer for the second time, with breast cancer for the second time. And uh, that was challenging for obvious reasons, but, um, yeah, I think it was helpful that we knew, like we we all enjoyed our time in Dubai and we were, we wish that we had the opportunity to stay there longer, but my dad's assignment was three years for his, my dad's company assignment was for three years. And at the end of that time, we knew we would be coming home. And I think we knew that at some point we would be going back to this normal or more normal life, what we knew life to be normal before Dubai. So I think that was a, a way that we were able to stay connected. But I mean, on a daily level, just having family dinners together, that's something that was always prioritized when we were younger. And I'm thankful my dad was able to stop working at a certain time or, you know, he at least he prioritized it. Um, whereas he could have gone to the gym or done something else or continue to work late but he made it a point to be home for dinner mostly every night and uh that's something that i now have come to appreciate even more um on top of that my mom's father um skippy uh <laughs> he has since great passed, name but <laughs> that's lights out right there yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna start calling you skippy kev hey i'm, I'm for it any um, connection to the peanut butter <laughs> well that's i i don't that might have been how it started um, yeah yeah but my my brother's fairly allergic to peanuts but so it's a, it's oh, a oh. funny family story but oh, he um he was a big part of my upbringing helped raise my brother and i when my dad was still in Dubai when my mom was going through cancer and he was just, you know, on the other side of the world. Um, so definitely had some support. Um, but yeah, fam the, 
the importance of family and sticking together was always reinforced when I was younger and still is. And for, for me, man, just even knowing you in your later stages of life, I always feel like you were a maturity level up on most of the people we were around for a long time and still are. Like, I wonder, and this is just me being curious about it, how much of that came from a, the family dynamics, like all the things you guys are battling and like how quickly that matured you as a young man, but like also just this experience of being in this vastly different place than everyone else that was our age on the main line, you know? Mm -hmm. I think my, something I used to give my parents crap about, especially my mom, um, because they had, my parents had me, my mom had me when she was 41 and my dad was 42. So they had kids later in life than most parents seem to. And um, like she was, my parents were always the oldest at the baseball games at the soccer games or whatever it was. And uh, I used to, I wouldn't say resent them for that. It's not the right word. Cause I didn't have that. I didn't think of it that way then. Um, but I was kind of frustrated by it because I don't know, for some reason, my mind always went to grandchildren. And if I had one, if I had grandchildren one day, you know, they wouldn't be around that long to be able to spend time with them. Um, I don't know why I was fixated on that, but I was probably because I had such a close relationship with my grandfather, Skippy, and I wanted them to experience that. And selfishly, I probably wanted them to have that relationship, but they, I mean, now I see having kids as having kids later in life as something that's desirable and something that I would, that I, I mean, you can't plan these things always, especially not to this level of detail or nuance, but I mean, I don't, I would probably try to follow in their footsteps to some extent with that, not saying 40 years old. Um, I don't even know if I truthfully want kids or if I do, how many, like that's a, that's a whole other conversation, but um, you know, they were very career oriented. My mom, up until she had my brother, Eric, when she was 37, worked full time. And at the same time, my dad did as well. And uh, luckily, my dad did well enough financially. And my mom had enough saved up from all those years of work to stay home with my brother and I. And uh, I just don't I think it's a it's a different. It's a little bit different when you have kids when you're 21. And you know, you have a lot of other things to juggle. Um, so I just think they, because they had more perspective by having kids later in life, they were able to impart some of their wisdom on my brother, Eric and I, that maybe most people don't have until later in life anyway. Um, so yeah. I was for that too. Yeah. I would say that's a pretty good observation. I mean, what would you say? Like, most young 20 year olds like our age are still we're still trying to figure the fuck out <laughs> like you know like we don't really 
for the most part, we know who yeah. we are. I mean, if you've done some some work with yourself, you you have a good idea as to like who you are as a person. Right. But I mean, we're talking about like even for myself, I'm 27. Like 10 years from now, I would hope to God, like in a decade, I have a little bit more experience and <laughs> have a little bit more uh, maybe some answers to questions yeah. than I than I do today. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a great observation. Probably probably relates to how mature you are as a person. <laughs> well, I. My parents had an interesting story and uh, they got married. So they met in college, they met at Uppsala College. Uh, my dad was a year older than my mom or is a year older than my mom. But when they met, he was a senior, she was a junior and they got married while my mom was still in school going into her senior year. Like they, they met, they were dating for a couple months they got engaged and got married uh, before my mom's senior year. So senior year, my mom was working a full-time job, married, and like a year, a year or so down the line, my dad had gotten a job opportunity in Singapore, and he said, "Kitty, like I got this opportunity in Singapore. Like let's move to Singapore, or can we go to Singapore?" And my mom you know, was just graduating from college, was about to start her career and said, no, I don't want to go to Singapore. I just have, I, I'm just starting my own career. And yes, while I want to embark upon some adventure, I don't know if that's the one I want to do at this stage of my life. And so they divorced and they didn't speak for a dozen years. And then I don't know. I've heard different story, uh, different varieties of the story, but apparently my dad's my dad's friend ran into my mom, or my yeah, my mom ran into my dad's friend, and he uh, she asked, "Oh, how's Bob doing?" And my dad's friend said, "Oh, he's doing well. He's still in Singapore." or was somewhere or had just gotten back. And my mom gave him a call that night. Kitty, or I'm sorry, Bob, it's Kitty. And he picked up the phone and hung up as, as soon as she said that. And then <laughs> the next day she called back and they more than made up. They, they got back together and popped out two kids and they gave it another shot. And, oh. um, but they, they literally didn't keep in touch for, you know, a dozen or so years. And uh, so I say that because they were so young when they first got married that, you know, they didn't know exactly what they wanted. And I mean, 21 and 22 years old. I mean, yes, it's a different, it was, they're part of a different generation. It's a different time. But I certainly at 21 or 22 couldn't even wrap my head around the idea of marriage or having kids or settling down coming right out of college because I wanted to do all those things my mom wanted to do at the time and uh so I think they they just learned from you know they they were their own people and then they came together at the right time luckily it worked out again you can't always plan those things but um that's something that I think I've benefited from as a result but it, it was totally happenstance it was luck 
Do you want me? To... Kev, yeah, I, I got it. I'm like, it. I'm like a humming, a humming, a humming. Um, yeah, that's 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 a wild story. Wow. God. So fast forward to you get back from abroad. How yeah. old are you? Are you going? You're middle school. 12, 13. Yeah, middle school. And you, the, the reason I'm asking age here, dude, is like fascinating. If we reflect on the conversation we have about your brother, like those were tough years for him, man. Like middle school, in my opinion, is where you meet some of your closest friends that you honestly carry with you through to high school and even college. Like that's how at least it was for me. And I believe similarly for maybe Kev, but how did, how did that, how did that change affect him? Uh, I mean, maybe you're speaking from your own reflection or conversations. I know he said, you said you talked to him about everything. Like, what do you think that change did for him? Yeah, it was a different experience for all of us. I know my mom liked it more than my dad, probably because my dad was stuck there in the summers, <laughs> poor guy by himself. Um, but I think I, I made a one, I mean, I had a couple of close friends while I was there, but one in particular I made on the first day of school and we became like instant best friends and still keep in touch regularly to this That's day. Cool. And my brother does, my brother has a couple of close friends from that period of his life as well. Um, but yeah, he, he took it a little bit differently. And uh, I think what really was more challenging was re-entry back into the States. Um, I, it was difficult for me as well. And I, and I feel like I kind of, I found it maybe a little bit easier than he did because he was then entering high school and that's more of a significant change than middle school was. Um, and th I think that's when things started to, to change for him because at that point he was, 15, 16 years old. And that's a very tough time for a lot of people. And uh, yeah, I mean, those are as any age, but like those are transformative years. And, and the reason I asked that maybe was just selfish. I, I know I, I've talked to my brother about this at length, but that's when we personally moved up or sorry, we, I was like an infant, but he, I, I believe he moved up from Texas to PA right at around the same time as your brother. And I know it was super, you know, pretty difficult for him. So that's why I asked that. Right. Yeah. Um, so you get back to the States. What was the hardest thing, uh, you know, about transitioning into, I guess, mainline where parents don't drive stretch, stretch Rolls Royces, they drive Range Rovers. Uh, <laughs> like what was the hardest part for you there? Yeah. Super poor. Super poor. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I would say, going to Dubai was harder, um, than coming back, but coming back was different for, or it was challenging for other reasons, but, um, luckily Dubai started a little league, like the year or two before we got there. So I was able to continue playing baseball. I actually played for the Dubai, it sounds crazy, but the Dubai national team. And, uh, we played in Poland in the regionals, uh, in the Europe, Middle East, and, and Africa regionals, 
um, for a spot to play in the Little League World Series. Luckily, or unfortunately, we lost to Saudi Arabia because they were a dynasty at that point. But uh, that was a really cool experience. So I think the thing that grounded me was my baseball. And my brother did play baseball and basketball and other sports there as well. Um, but I think by the time he came back to the States, he was, he played a year in high school. But by that point, I think he was kind of done with sports. Uh, whereas I continued on the, on that athletic, that athletic path. And uh, I think those, that was maybe something that contributed to that difference. And I got to say some of my biggest life lessons, man, when I, at least when I think about the things that shaped me the most as a child or like high school into college, all of it's sports, Mm -hmm. all of it, like your teammates, you and you and your teammates getting after it, like your coach telling you, you need to do this better. And it like makes you insecure and you got to change, adapt, evolve, like how much of your idea about who you were was baseball going into college huge i mean baseball was my identity and it was something yeah primarily baseball i mean sports in general but mainly baseball uh i've always still i mean i've attached my identity and it's I've worked to kind of change this inner dialogue and narrative, but I'd always attach myself with being an athlete. And when I was looking at what colleges I wanted to go to, baseball was a big factor in that decision. Did I want to play baseball in college at the varsity level, or did I want to go to Penn State and play club and be in a fraternity and have a more well-rounded college experience? So yeah, I, at that point in my life, it was, it was like pretty much everything to me. And the reason I asked poignantly is because I know, like, kind of, I, I was at least involved in somewhat of your college experience, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure when that identity ultimately shifted, because I would say, at least fr- from who I knew you, it seemed like maybe junior year, like freshman, sophomore year, you still kind of had that club baseball identity, like what changed or what shifted for you? I think that I kind of was able to sift through. Yeah, I I think, yeah, I think I just got some perspective and I, I didn't want to let my ego continue to control the decisions that I made. I think what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, like even going to college, I uh, or choosing where I wanted to go to college, I had the opportunity to I was real I was between Bentley University in Boston to play Division 2 baseball at the varsity level or go to Penn State. Those were the two it ultimately came down to and it was a big deal for me to turned down that offer to play baseball in college to go to Penn State. And now it seems like a no brainer, but at the time I was playing on a, I mean, my high school team was stacked. Like everyone 
who was in the starting lineup was using using some juice. <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone who was in the starting lineup was going to a Division One school and playing in college or playing at the next level. Half the people on the bench were. I mean, it was just like a very competitive environment, and I. I think to be able to keep up with them or want to keep up with them. I think I just wanted to say, oh yeah, I'm playing baseball in college, but was that actually the thing I wanted to do? And the answer was no, but I didn't have that perspective until literally the, I mean, I probably, I knew it deep down, but I didn't admit it to myself and I didn't admit it to other people because when, I don't know, I wanted to sign that national letter of intent like everybody else and take a picture in a Penn State shirt or whatever college I was going to, I don't know, just so I could say it, but I mean, looking back now, that's absurd. And I think I did the same thing in college with club baseball. I, I think I naturally gravitated towards club baseball because it was kind of a happy medium between playing baseball at the varsity level and playing intramural beer, intramural beer league with your buddies in your fraternity, which is what we did. And it was fun for different reasons but you were stacked dude i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> but it um i think i did the same thing in college and i think i continued playing club baseball for a couple of years because i couldn't let go of that because i had always attached my identity to baseball or with baseball that i didn't that saying goodbye to that felt like i would be losing a part of myself and i wasn't ready to deal with that yet and that makes sense honestly like i don't think people are able to even as they get older rapidly change identity like it's a very tough thing for a lot of people to do even me right like just reflecting on what happened after the iron man dude i was in a lull for like three four months i was like what's my identity you know like my, my identity for a year was training for this iron man so I mean, I wouldn't be hard on yourself at all. I don't know if you are. I'm just, I, I'm just talking out loud. It's like, it's a very hard time to just change your identity when you're going into this completely new social environment that is college, not to mention Penn State. Like, so, um, what? And maybe um, this is an interesting question. What do you think your identity shifted to then? Someone who was, well, I think in college, I mean, as soon as you walk on campus, there are ways to make the university smaller, like Penn, a school like Penn State. That's, it was so daunting. Like, I was comforted knowing that, you know, worst case, not worst case, that sounds bad, but like there would be people on campus that I knew from my high right. school. If I decided I wanted to go that route, I always could, but I really wanted to use this time to break free from that and to break free from that maybe penn state wasn't the right choice but that was the school i wanted to go to and i stayed with club baseball for a couple of years and then sigma chi took over and dominated at least things on the social front and i quickly realized like after sophomore year like even during sophomore year i remember prepping for an interview like in PV sophomore year spring break that I had 
when I got home. And I remember thinking like, okay, like I, I was just submer like, I was just, I became obsessed with finance and wanting to get the ideal internship. Well, first it was like, find my group of friends. So that originally was club baseball because that was the fraternity before, before the fraternity, because I pledged in the spring. And then I met a whole bunch of other new guys when I pledged Sigma Chi and, um, So I kind of checked those boxes first and then it was to get an internship. And then once you get an internship, it's to get a job. So I think I was always just like looking forward to the next thing. And in college, I mean, it's so much time is spent in the classroom, but so much of what you learn in college, like the most important things that you learn in college are probably learned outside of the classroom. And I think I, I kind of changed my identity to somebody who is going to get an internship on Wall Street or at a big bank. And once I did that, or once I accomplished that goal, I became obsessed with trying to get a return offer at the same Wall Street firm or bank. Um, so I think I just kind of dove headfirst into that, uh, at least on the cognitive front. Um, because that's, in my mind, that's what I was there to do. I was there to get a degree. I was there to get a good job. Um, but physically, I had certainly changed from a baseball player into somebody who just became obsessed with lifting weights. And I think a lot of people do that in college. They just want to get as big as possible. They want to be the guy at the party with the big biceps and, you know, whose body stands out to girls. And I didn't... I don't think I would admit that admit that to my college self, but like now that's obviously what I was trying to do. I was just, I wanted to be as big as possible because I think it, yeah, maybe there were some insecurities that I was just trying to hide through being able to lift more than the guy next to me at the gym or somebody else in my fraternity. And uh, I think I was just trying to yeah, I, I think I just became obsessed with lifting weights and uh, turned my turned some of that negative energy into the gym. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's natural, right, to redirect that. It's almost like this competitive like switch that you have to like that you have to feed, and maybe that's what you were experiencing. I know I have this because every time like I have to remind myself that like my coworkers are my enemy. Um, and I've had to do this multiple times, but like. I'm just a competitive person and maybe you're like this too, but like, as soon as like you're starting to be compared to somebody else or you're doing the same thing, like you want to do it better than that person. Mm -hmm. And so like the switch from baseball to like, I mean, it sounds like I'm not surprised at all that you started diving straight into something else at that point. Um, that was somewhat, maybe a little bit competitive, but I did want to circle back on one important thing. I think you said there was, a lot of your lessons that you learned in college weren't actually in the classroom. And I think this is a big thing um, that a lot of people miss when, when they talk about education and going to college and um, the value of it. So could you ex explain maybe some of those, just, I guess, top three most important lessons that you would learned in college? We're always top three. Classroom. Top three. We're always top three. Put pressure top. on me, Kev. I could give you one, one thing that really stands out. Yeah. Um, and that would be 
the importance of tribe. I think that, I mean, I know it's come up in this podcast and books and, and everyone talks about it and it's cliche, but like you're a product of the five people you spend the most time with. And whether it's five, I don't know, but I think there's some, there's certainly some truth to that. And um, I, I don't say, I don't like regret spending time with people who are the wrong people. And I don't want to even say the wrong people because they weren't the wrong people at the time. At the time they were the right people. And they taught me valuable lessons that I know now. And they gave me those lessons to carry. I mean, I've carried those lessons into future relationships that I've entered. Um, I mean, at the time when I was, when I was, yeah, first semester of freshman year, uh, I was still with my high school girlfriend. And, you know, after a year we had broken up and that was challenging at the time I was heartbroken. I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and then sophomore year rolled around and I met somebody else that I was interested in. And, you know, I entered into another relationship, like just those important things. Like, yes, there were, I learned a lot from my finance classes in, in at Penn State, but so much of it was know, dealing with heartbreak for the first time or falling in love for the first time um, or trying to fit in when there are thousands of other people on campus that I could surround myself with or really struggling or wrapping my head around identity or you know even like what I wanted to major in like I had no idea that I I think it's absurd that our educational system expects 18, 19, 20 year olds to know what they want to do for the rest of their lives and have them pick a path and stick to it and put them in thousands of dollars worth of debt if they make the wrong choice or even if they make the right choice for them to have to pay that back over, you know, until they're 50 years old in some instances. Um, but I think, yeah, coming back to the tribe piece, um, yeah, by, by sophomore year, I felt like I was kind of done with the party scene. And that's why I became so involved or wanted to become so involved with leadership for Sigma Chi. And I, I mean, I held various positions in the house, but I was VP and um I was the hard ass to a lot of people and that was not an easy job, but like to me being risk and like being risk chair and being VP, it was an easy position for me to get out of drinking and partying. And uh, because I felt I like quickly realized that that's not what, that's not how I wanted to spend my time or energy anymore. And I wanted to do something that was benefiting me and others. And, uh, I know that was it's funny you say that like I I um dove into leadership within my fraternity as well and you you kind of it's funny how quickly your friends like switch right because like once you're in a position of leadership and responsibility it almost seems like no one's your friend anymore and so I mean for me I mean not that that no they're not your friend but like it's like, why aren't you guys trying to help me out? Like I was stupid enough to become right. a president in my fraternity. That was a yeah. very good lesson in leadership and how not to lead. 
And you learn that, especially in those positions, and sometimes in any leadership position, leadership's lonely because you have to make those, those tough decisions. And sometimes you have to be the guy that everybody hates so that everyone else can have fun, right? Yeah. So that's, that's yeah, that's a great point. Great things you bring up there around leadership and, and lessons in college. I think um, too often people, people say that, the cost of college isn't worth it. And I think it's, there's a little bit more to that discussion. Of course, if you major in um, something that doesn't, doesn't get you a lot of education there, there's a whole nother discussion. Watch yourself. On that. Watch yourself. <laughs> well, you were saying it's, it's funny how kids don't have a, uh, are forced to pick a major at 18, 19 right. years old. And I was like, yeah, like imagine liberal arts, right? Like that's a major in everything, but it's looked at as like, you didn't learn anything like that's liberal right. arts is looked down upon. Right. So it's, it's funny how like those things exist in our society. So, yeah, but I mean, I'm back to school. Like I'm, I'm glad I majored in finance. It's a practical degree. I'm, I'm glad that I've had some solid, I'm glad I've gotten some solid experience under my belt with that degree. Um, but it, even now I'm like, is this what I want to do for, X number of years, like I don't know, like that age, that answer changes, and I think, I mean, we're not people change so quickly um, that I mean, people make career pivots, life pivots at 40, 50 years old. So, like asking somebody to do that at you know at college ages, I think is really difficult. But um, yeah, I, I from Sigma Chi, I mean, there were in Colton, like we, you know, like we call these people our brothers and um, part of it is like woo woo, but I was really into it in college. I, I went to Horizons, which is a leadership program. I went to BLTW, which is a, which was a leadership program through the summer that, you know, kids in the house who wanted to take leadership positions went to. Um, and I was really into it. And I could sense that other people in the house weren't as into it as I was. Um, but that just, to me, that meant it's like, okay, these aren't the right people for me. And I was, I knew that by the time, by the time I was, by the time I graduated, we were graduating, I knew that I wouldn't keep in touch with most of these people because by the time, you know, we were probably halfway through college, I was no longer hanging out with the majority of people that I was, very close or quote unquote very close with in high school um and i by that time i saw my social circle narrowing but for a good reason and i i think i originally fought against it or told myself that wasn't okay and then i needed to keep in touch regularly and then i think by the time it happened with people in college i was ready for it and i embraced it and now i certainly do you know i'd rather have i mean you guys were talking about this the other week like i'd, I'd, I'd much rather have three to five close friends that i can go to with a problem or with anything and they will hold space for me rather than you know, 30 or 50 acquaintances that don't really know anything about me and there's no depth in that conversation, um, which I feel a lot of people our age do because they're afraid to do something different or what's not perceived as normal 
you know, they, and, and I'm not judging this, but like a lot of, like in college, there's so much of it is centered around drinking and partying. And I think that a lot of people continue, especially shortly after college, but like continue going down that path and don't really give it much question. And they find themselves, whether you're 25 or 30, like still engaging in some of those behaviors. And I just, I remember realizing that that's not what I wanted to do. And I'd rather, instead of waking up on Saturday with a hangover and feeling like, feeling like crap and not getting a good start to the next work week, I'd rather get a decent night's sleep on Friday, wake up early on Saturday morning, bang out a workout and feel productive and start to win incrementally over time. And I, I think that's where I started to really separate from my peers and um, probably why we're doing this now, because you guys, I know, are the same type of people. Um, so I wanted to jump in and just have you stay on the thought process of in a very socially dynamic world that is college how you were able to shut out the noise of people talking shit on you or like people saying, Oh, Adam's changed. Adam's this Adam's that like, how did you block that out? And then second question on that is how do you not judge those people a little bit? That was something. And this is me personally asking questions. Both of those things were so hard for me because a your social credibility really at least I viewed it at Penn state, like your social credibility was kind of how you were valued, bro. Like, yeah. at least that's how I saw it. Um, so it was hard for me to make that shift. And then after I made that shift, it was hard for me not to be like judging the people that were doing things that I used to do. Um, so those are kind of my two questions um, on that kind of topic. I think they go hand in hand. One, how do I, how did I block it out? I, I mean, the, the easy answer is to say, I just didn't think about it or I said, screw it and didn't let it get to me, but that's not true because it did. Um, especially in the fraternity when I was VP, I mean, there was one situation like that. Colton, you can probably, you probably remember the story with one of our friends um, basically flooded the entire house and uh, blackmailed the fraternity and uh put us all in a very uncomfortable position certainly at the executive board and uh i was seen as the bad guy um mainly me because i was in his pledge class everyone else i mean not everyone else but like i had i was the one who was delivering that bad news and um yeah it was tough i mean relationships were certainly strained but I, this is kind of when I went like full into bodybuilding. And um, I mean, I'd always lifted weights um, for baseball. I started lifting weights in high school or I guess in middle school. My brother, I remember started P90X when he was early in high school. And I just remember he got like jacked over the course of those three months. And from there, I was like, okay, like lifting weights is something I can always fall back on or like we'll always engage in and then uh I kind of carry that into college and then once I started playing once I stopped playing baseball like I you know I, I no longer needed to have functional strength because I didn't like care if 
my biceps were so big that I couldn't throw a baseball properly from behind the plate. But uh, so I just started spending a lot of time in the gym and uh, that became a way I dealt with that negativity or that criticism. And I tried to just tune it out. And it, yes, it was a coping mechanism. It wasn't, I wasn't dealing with the actual problem, but for me, even those temporary fixes gave me, gave me pleasure. And in addition to that, I, uh, senior year of second semester, I lived by myself uh, because I was VP uh, in for the first semester of senior year, I was living in the house. And then second semester, uh, I lived by myself because I didn't want to live in the house anymore. And all of our buddies were already signed into a lease together through the rest of the year. So I kind of did my own thing. And, uh, you know, at that time, it was definitely hard because I, I had to make more active approaches to being social. And, you know, it was no longer just going down the hall to knock on whoever's room to hang out. I had to drive or ride my bike or walk a couple miles across town to do that. And even then I could, I was struggling with it because it's like, oh, like they're going out to the bar for the third night in a row. Do I really want to do that? Or is it easier to just stay home? And it was always easier to stay home because I didn't want to do that behavior, but I was so scared of, I was scared of telling them and being honest with them about not doing that with them because I was fearful that I would hurt their feelings and they wouldn't want to hang out with me anymore. And um, I, yeah, I didn't want to disappoint them. And it is, to your point, it is hard to not judge them for it or judge other people for engaging in the behaviors that you don't want to do or that you do want to do. And they, it's kind of just the opposite, but um, just being reminded that every, you know, everyone's on their own journey, on their own path, not, I mean, even us, like we're, we're similar people. We have similar hobbies work. We all work in the financial services industry, but we're drastically different people. I mean, Kev's a couple of years older than us. And like in those couple of years, I'm sure he's learned many valuable, I'm sure you've learned many valuable lessons that you know, we may not understand yet. And just, yeah, just realizing that people are different and trying to accept that. Um, I mean, it's a practice though. It's, it, yeah. it's, it's not as easy as just flipping a switch. Yeah, it's a, it takes a conscious, really conscious effort uh, to do that because it's so it's so easy to to look at those people or look at even the people like like something you said earlier, which is something that I haven't really thought about is is those people weren't aren't the wrong people. They're they were the right people at that time, right? Mm -hmm. yep. So with that, I mean, we we have all had drastically different lives. Um, and we're, we're definitely drastically different people with different personalities. A few, a few common things doesn't make us all, you know, uh, tick the same. I think that's a good point. One thing I wanted to say though, as we've kind of developed out of this college stage of our lives, I've given a little bit more thought to the, the judging. I think judging is a negative connotation for sure with respect to the people you hang out with, but I don't think it's incorrect to be analytical. And when I say analytical, I mean, 
actually being consciously aware of what the things are that the people are in your circle, like what things they bring to you and mutual benefit. Like, what do you bring to them? I don't think that's wrong. I think, you know, treating someone like shit because they're different than you wrong, right? Like that would be judgy, but I I think there needs to be a slightly different turn on the word where it's like, dude, you got to critically think about the people that are in your circle. It isn't just happenstance that, I'm best friends with Kev now when we were showing up early to the gym, we were showing up early to work. Like I was consciously aware of that was someone I wanted in my circle. He seemed like he was doing big shit and I wanted to see how I could feed off of that energy. So um, that's just one thought I have, but I, I, I still reflect back on the time about previous friends. And I remember how judgy I was. So it's dude, it's very, very, it's very difficult. Um, yeah. I, I think you need to look and I've, I try to see people through an objective lens and their behaviors through an objective lens. And yeah, not judging them is hard or not judging the behaviors is hard. Um, but c- certainly drinking is something that I gravitated away from um, and reduced since college. I occasionally have a beer like if i'm having a cheat day it's like once you know i'll have a beer like once every three months now um but it's just not it's a behavior i didn't i don't really enjoy i enjoy getting a beer you know after a hike uh but you know not on a regular basis and i've thought about it like do you like if you remove the social lubricant that is alcohol are you even friends with or can you are you even enjoying the conversation or the people that you're spending the time with and for me shortly after college the answer was typically no I wasn't enjoying like it was just those people I was I was like I would rather do what I want to do at home or whatever it is rather than schlep to the city and be in a crowded loud bar screaming to have a conversation with someone that I don't really like about superficial materialistic things. Like I just had like, and it was harder to say, no, I don't want to do that to them than actually to do it. I would like take the hit and I would be, I would stay up late. I'd be hung over the next day. Like I didn't enjoy it, but like, I felt like I was like hanging on that social thread and kept tugging it and tugging it so I could feel included. Um, and it was so like, I just needed to let that go. And once I let it go, I was more than relieved. Like the weight had just been lifted off my shoulders. Um, and I've seen another lens. I, and I go back and forth with this because it's not as binary as the way I'm going to make it out to be, but And I think I heard this from Jesse Itzler who said like, is this person, like when you're looking at a friend or an acquaintance or whoever the person is like, is this person adding value to my life, bringing me energy or are they taking my energy and draining that energy? And again, I don't, it's, it's more nuanced than that, but it's kind of been a way that I've evaluated the people I surround myself with. Yeah, I think that's a good, I mean, that's a great way to look at it. Um, it's, it's so funny. I, I think all of us probably 
after we left college had that same very similar experience you know you you're kind of hanging on to the the going out uh working the weekend friday saturday you you head out because that's what all your friends do and i mean what's the what's the thing we're doing as soon as we start education it's like trying to fit in but you just want to try to fit in you want to try to you know, have friends you want you want people like you and then when you leave college it it's natural that people start to continue to trend in that direction until you actually have the realization that you know waking up hung not hung over on a saturday morning quite possibly one of the best things to ever <laughs> be invented i mean i don't know who if if like who still wants to drink if they've woken up on it there's just something weird about saturday mornings not hung over i don't know i don't know what it is about it maybe maybe i'm just a psychopath but when you wake up and you feel like rested and most other people are probably hung over and you you're gonna have an awesome productive day and feel amazing it's just nothing like it versus the alternative but um but something i wanted to i guess transition to was like you talked about fitness and um, your journey and that starting with baseball and, and going into the, maybe the more bro science gym, uh, methodology. Uh, but most recently, I mean, uh, we got connected through Colton through, you know, endurance, uh, training, tri- specifically triathlon. So how did you stumble upon that, that endeavor? Um, and yeah, that, I guess that's, that's where I want to leave it. Yeah. So I mean, I'd always ridden my bike as a kid and loved it. I just remember being, I mean, we rode everyone in the neighborhood. We always rode our bikes everywhere to each other's houses when we were going to play with each other or we rode them to swim practice or to the baseball field, whatever it was, wherever it was. We always went by bike and that was really fun. And I mean, we didn't think anything else of it. It's just like, okay, this is how we get around when we're, I don't know, 10, 15 years old before any of us could drive. And that was always really fun. And then when I think by the time I graduated college, I mean, my body was getting pretty beaten up from all of the lifting. Just there was no reason I needed to be deadlifting or squatting like 300 pounds. But, you know, that that's something that I wanted to do. Just that shows you how much of a man you are, dude. <laughs> but like it just seems silly now but uh you know at the time I, I cared about all that stuff way more than i do now and just so you know kevin and i still te- text each other our olympic lift maxes oh, so. i'm sure you guys do because yeah. you you're crossfit guys but um like that <laughs> we're still we still break out the ruler every once in a while <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> no no judgment guys yeah yeah but, of course. uh yeah i mean i after college i lived at home i still live at home and i've been living at home since then to uh save up some money and launch where and when i want to and uh, i'm thankful i'm in a position to be able to do that and luckily i've good relationships with all of my family members so it works for me and and us um but anyway my my dad after college i wanted to do something that was a little bit better for my body but i still wanted to be active i was strong but i mean i'd probably be winded walking up two flights of stairs and like i knew something needed to change a little bit and uh my dad had 
a hybrid bike in the garage that it, he would take out occasionally. And I'm, I think I was motivated by him and it was his, like, it just seemed like such a novel idea to go for a bike ride uh, because it made you feel like a kid again. And, and like, I hadn't been on a bike in years, uh, maybe a spin bike at the gym to warm up before a leg day, but like nothing serious. And uh, I remember I then started to go for the loop. I tried to leave from my house, which was near Valley Forge Park, go leave from the house, go around the loop and back to the house in under 30 minutes. And I just remember being becoming obsessed with trying to do that. And then once I achieved that time and went for, I, I became, I just wanted to go by distance. So I would go with it, start with a five mile ride, then a 10 mile ride, then a 15 mile ride. And then as you guys know, like your baseline just becomes elevated through, and I wasn't even, I wouldn't call it training then. It was just something that I enjoyed doing and I had fun with. Um, and I just, I, my buddy and I went for, I remember like one day we geared up and went for a 50 mile ride and we were both absolutely shot because neither of us had ridden more than 30 miles together. And we did it on a cold March day. And just like those last few miles back to Valley Forge, like after we had gone into Philly and back were the hardest miles of my life. Like, I'll never forget that those, those moments, but um, I enjoyed the satisfaction of pushing your body physically in a different way. And as a result of pushing your body physically, also pushing yourself mentally. And uh, I'm sure you guys can attest to that through your Ironman journeys as well. Um, but that, that was kind of the, the original thing. It was just, I, I felt like a kid when I rode my bike and then it just became something competitive to me. And, and reflect on what you said about the mental, like I would almost argue endurance is, it's more the mental high I get way way more than the physical like i don't feel like i look great after i run a marathon it's like oh shit you just did a marathon you know um it's funny how it seems like it transitioned from wanting to look good you know at the stage of your life to finding enjoyment for this kid like uh endeavor but also that mental stimulus that i don't know i don't think the work i don't think work gives you that at least I, I I haven't found that exact threshold of overcoming mentally and anything I've done at work. Yeah, there's something about physical pain. I think the combination of the two is pretty hard, pretty hard to beat. Yeah. But yeah, just like you just like you said, I would I would echo what Colton said. Is that I mean, at a certain extent, at a certain point, endurance events become more about the mental uh the, there's something going on in the background here <laughs> more more about the mental than the physical i mean i read this amazing book called endure and it gives the example of two world-class marathon runners at the end of a race and they're both sprinting to the finish line and you i'm sure you've seen this before whether it be iron man whatever whatever it is typically there's one person that just has that little little extra edge and is it physical i mean the book argues no right the the the, the difference those both those world-class runners are 
you know, phys- more than physically capable, probably equal to that. The difference comes down to the mental perspective that they have in those moments. So, um, yeah, it's such a cool thing that endurance events bring that really, I, I mean, I haven't been able to find anywhere else in my entire, like my entire life, whether it be work or sports, whatever it may be. So what was your first race? My first race, well, we did my first triathlon, um, was the Pocono sprint triathlon. Uh, and that was in June of this year. And I did, I mean, I felt, I mean, it was a sprint triathlon. So I think it was 750 meters in the water. Uh, and this was an open, yeah. in Lake Warren Palm pack in the Poconos, it was like a 750 meter swim. I think it was 11 or 12 miles on the bike and uh, 5k. And I felt solid on the bike because that's the thing I had been focusing on more than anything. Um, but swimming was challenging for me. I mean, I, I swam competitively growing up until high school and swimming actually more than baseball. I mean, I, I should have stuck with swimming. It was my best sport by far. And, um, I do have some regrets about dropping swimming, but at the same time, it's, again, it's, it's part of that natural evolution and like, it was the right decision then. So I've, I've grown with it. I gotta ask you, what was your stroke? What was your stroke, dude? That's why I was smiling. I knew Kev was going (laughs) to hop in about some, some swim comment. What? You're lucky you got out early, by the way, just so you know. (laughs) I was, I was a breaststroke. Oh man. The one thing I can't do now, not a Um, chance. I wasn't legal until like high school. (laughs) No joke. No joke. Still questionable. I was a, I was a breaststroke guy and I loved, I loved it until it started to feel like work. Um, no, it was part of, it was like swim practice. Like I was doing two a days, um, because I would go to the older kids high school. I'm sorry, not the high school practice. I would go to um, my older brother's swim practice with he and all of his friends who were a couple years older. And then I would stay for the younger group um, with kids who were my age. And that, like at that time, it just started to feel too demanding. And it's like, this is not what I want to do. I want to hang out with my friends in the deep end and play shark and eat cheese fries and play ping pong and play wiffle ball in the summer. Like it, it just started to feel like a chore. Uh, in this, in the same way baseball did later on. And I kind of knew that's when I wanted to have a different relationship with it. And instead of having a different, I mean, a different relationship with it was walking away from it. Um, but I found getting back in the water to be pretty fun because I had some experience there. So, uh, I enjoyed that cycling is something that I've been, I had been interested by that point for a couple of years. So that, I felt solid about. And then within the first half, I just want to say one thing about your interest. Your interest is intense, like (laughs) not in a bad way because it's who you are. Like it's who you are, but your interest to most, like your hobbies to most are on a different level, like absolutely different level, which is good, which is why you're fucking really good at what you do. But when you say you're interested in cycling, dude, I've never, your intensity with which you cycled was um, a dear friend of of ours 
was like, dude, I went for a 30 minute ride with holes and I legit thought I was going to throw up like a 30 minute ride because you were just, you were hammering like 300 RPMs dude, or 300 Watts. You were just smashing it. You so. still can't get the freaking things right with the biking. dude. You're I so hate bad. biking. I hate biking. That's why you I ever want to see bike. something funny, have Colton change a bike tire for you. Uh, <laughs> don't bring it up, but sorry. I just wanted to, I mean, I, I think yeah. that's one of the beautiful things about you is how intensely you take the things that you're interested in. That's why you're good at them. But sorry. yeah, it's uh yes. Yeah, so cycling was, yes. I, I, I know the friend you're talking about. I remember the ride. Uh, <laughs> Was this correct? He, he he doesn't yeah, let it down to this day. Yeah. He talks about going, he goes he talks about going for a ride with Lance Armstrong and it makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's got his yellow got, kit on, dude. He's got his yellow like, kit on. And it was yeah, and it was it was that that ride. Funny enough, was uh, two weeks after I I had gotten my appendix removed. Um, I had Are like you shitting, and it was like one of my first rides back. But at that point I was like all in on cycling. Um, but that's typically how I've gone about things, especially athletic pursuits. I just, when I find something I gravitate towards, when I'm find something I'm interested in, I just go head first and like, I become obsessed with it. And I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, because where do yeah. you find it being a curse is actually I, i'm yeah i would say we we knowing all three of us pretty intimately i feel like at this point in my life like i, I would say we have a lot of that uh, obsession built into us so where do you see it being be negative for you when it affects my ability to relax and think about anything else it affects yeah me personally but as a result my relationships um my work like other things take a hit when i i like i have a list on my bulletin board i've had a list on my bulletin board since i was a little kid with just like obsessions of mine um it's you know at some point it was bodybuilding at some point it was rock climbing and you know there's mountaineering on there and different things that like i've just i just become fascinated with all of these different things and i just like can't do anything else until i give my all in that realm and then once i've checked that box i move on to the next thing but until i get to that point i feel like i have room left to give and that's not necessarily the way i it's how i think about things now but do i think that's the way I, I don't even like, that's not the way I want to deal with things. It's just the way I've always dealt with things, but it's something I've, I'm trying to have a healthier relationship with because it's hard to turn it off. And here's something that clicked for me in last year. I read a book and and I, I don't necessarily agree with everything this guy says, but Grant Cardone, it's called be obsessed or be average. Someone sent it to me and I read it when I was loving fitness more than everything. And I was like, dude, fuck it. Like, I'm going to just call myself obsessed with it. If you watch my Instagram posts, it's like, I just lean into this obsession mentality. And, and honestly, it started bringing a lightness to me, like just being okay with it. I'm not saying that's advice, like tangibly you take, I'm not sure if it works for you, but I've just found like in, in terms of my fitness pursuits, giving myself the space to be obsessed with it has honestly dropped my 
has honestly stopped uh, affecting me in an emotional way where it drains me because I'm just like, yeah, it's a part of me, man. I'm obsessed with it. Like I, I, I'm not, it's just food for thought. I don't know. It's something that has brought a lightness to me in the last, you know, call it 12, 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think part of the reason why, especially triathlon has taken such a big role in my life is because of Hannah. Um, for those who don't know, I mean, Kev, I don't know if you met Hannah, but she's my girlfriend. We've been dating for two years and she's the one who really, <laughs> she had just like, when we met, she had just qualified. She had just raced to the 70.3 Lake Placid and had qualified for 70.3 worlds. And, uh, like at that point I hadn't done a triathlon at that point I was starting that was that this was kind of the stage that I where I went for that ride with Brez and I was like really into cycling it was after my accident and I was like I was like this is where I want to focus my attention and uh our first date was a 30 mile ride at Surprise and like love we, it we met through a bike shop um our bike shop is Trek Valley Forge and <laughs> Shout out, shout out. Sponsor the episode. Uh, one of the women who works there uh, is friends with Hannah's mom. And I went in one day, she asked if I was single because she said she had her, her friend's daughter was into triathlon and, you know, similar things that I was. And um, I slid in her DMs and we nothing wrong with that bro yeah no, man. yeah it's familiar i don't think it's unfortunately <laughs> he hasn't he hasn't had any 30 mile bike rides yet but hey don't shit on me kev your girlfriend slid in your dms too that's so true that's true off. that's true that's true yeah, yeah. Well, that was uh that was kind of the genesis story and like that's why triathlon has become such a pivotal has played such a pivotal role certainly in my life in the last two years um because we can share that together and i mean she's a freak athlete she's i mean she's very well-rounded in all three disciplines when she focuses on them but mainly i mean she likes running more than anything else and that's that's a, that's her thing um so it's cool because i got i like the bike more she likes running more so you know she gets me to put on my running shoes more often and I get her on the, on two wheels more often. So we, we balance each other out in that way. Did you want to hop in Kev? No, good. I'm sorry. I'll just step on your toes a little bit yeah, more. It's cool. I was, Stop I was, <laughs> I was just going to say she does. And her and I were like talking about this podcast and different things to just bring up. But I mentioned this in the notes, man, even in the brief time I saw you guys interact, she brings a lightness to your demeanor that I haven't seen anyone in your life to this point bring like your energy when you're around her is different. And it's, it, it's awesome to just be a bystander in that. Like, I, I just observe it. Like you're a lighter human being in your pursuits of everything, which it seems like a good thing for you. It seems like a, a really, really good thing for you. Yeah. I think I have a tendency, like when I become obsessed with a certain physical endeavor, like I have in the past. Yeah. I, be, I go into it and I take myself so seriously, often too seriously. 
And she reminds me, especially with triathlon, like that it's okay to, like, it's supposed to be fun. Like it's okay to have a beer. It's okay to have a slice of pizza. It's okay to not do the exact workout, the exact workout that your coach had planned for you. That's in your training plan for that day. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that too, uh, is a, can be a double-edged sword because on some days she's, or I'm, I'm not feeling great and she wants to go out and hammer a huge ride or run. And then on the flip side, sometimes I'm feeling great and she wants to just hang out on the couch and read a book or watch a movie. Um, so we hold each other accountable. Um, but it, it, <laughs> like it's, it's physically exhausting because uh, we have a hard time being content uh, with each other because we're both hard charging people. Yeah, that's a good thing though. I mean, it's better than the alternative, right? I know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's Every- easier to bring yourself down than to kind of, I would say it's, it's easier to bring yourself down to try to ra- raise other people up, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's good. It's always good to have like a rational head near you uh, when you're, you're walking out of the car, like a walking out of the house, like a broken down car to do like a hundred mile ride. And they're like, maybe you should just relax <laughs> for a second, yeah, <laughs> take a load off take a rest day you're allowed <laughs> yeah where, that, do I, where do i find one of those yeah <laughs> but she it's she get like she gets it and she can keep up um i think something that i struggled with in college was with my girlfriend at the time is relating I mean, we had a hard time seeing eye to eye on certain things and we had different priorities there's nothing wrong with that i wanted to spend my time on a Friday night in the gym and she wanted to go out to a bar and like, that's perfectly normal, especially in college. Um, but it's nice because like, while we do those, like Hannah and I engage in those behaviors occasionally and go out and get a beer, or go out for a bite to eat. Um, you know, we usually see eye to eye with more things. And, uh, I think our priorities and our values are aligned, which makes things a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it's funny you say you, you met on a, a 30 minute bike ride. I mean, I met my girlfriend at the gym at five 30 in the morning at a CrossFit <laughs> gym. So it's, I mean, maybe there's a correlation there, but yeah, it's always, it's, it's cool to, um, I just think that's natural when you're doing something that you want, you enjoy and you find someone else that's also just as passionate about it. I think more, more likely than not, um, there's, there's a good opportunity for some friction. So I, um, I think you started to inter- interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't know if either of you have read atomic habits, um, by James clear, uh, but I, I think you guys are talking about this the other day. It's on the I list. Have a, I have a, I have a, a marker in my pocket right now. You can't see it. <laughs> it's, uh, you don't get it. Said, like make, make the desired behavior, the normal behavior. So associate with people who, like if you want to become a runner, hang out with people who run and then you'll become a runner. It's, it sounds so simplistic, but it's not simple. Like it's, it's hard make do it like making those changes, but I, and I wasn't trying to meet someone when Hannah and I met, I just walked into a bike shop and that opportunity presented itself because I was at that time interested in cycling. So, I mean, if you want to meet somebody who 
likes drinking as much as you go to a bar i mean like it's like the same sort of premise but it's like it's a little bit it's just a different end of it's just somewhere different on that spectrum yeah very insightful very insightful i know i know you mentioned this a while ago but i think it's important that we touch on this before before we run out of time here you mentioned your accident a while back um so you know the floor is yours. You can you can talk about it as much as you want or not. But I know Colton and I, uh, I I don't know too much about exactly what happened, but uh, sounds like it was a pretty impactful experience. Um, we both saw your LinkedIn post. I think that's what kind of spurred this podcast. Honestly, <laughs> very well worded. Um, but that you know moments like those in in someone's life are. I feel like most people have a moment like that. So whether they've had it already or they're going to have it at some point, I think it'd be helpful to hear what that was like for you and how you handled it. Yeah. So I was, it was, the accident took place on June 1st of 2019. Um, so it was over two years ago at this point uh, to it. Yeah. Two and a half years or so. Um, but I went for a ride. I left my house went for a ride and at this point I was really into cycling and I went to Philly and back and um, from Valley Forge it was about 50 miles and I remember checking my watch as I came back as I entered back into the park after going out to Philly my watch was 48 or 49 miles and I told myself it's like okay like might as well go for 50 do a lap do another lap around the park and that's another thing I kind of obsess about but I think a lot of people do especially triathletes um they're as they're very data centric and driven um but anyway not normal for most but definitely normal for us (laughs) yeah important revision there um but went for another loop around the park and as I was finishing up uh, I was on North Outer Line Drive, and I don't know how familiar you guys are with the park, but if you go into the park, the, the main entrance, and you veer left, that's North Outer Line Drive. And I was riding on that road. It's a one-way. It's, I think it's 25 miles an hour. And I was headed towards the arch, which is that parking lot, which is where my car was. And I was probably a quarter of a mile from my car after being on the bike for 50-plus miles and. I don't know, three hours or so. And uh, I was sideswiped by a minivan. And um, I just remember seeing this figure. I couldn't exactly make out what it was. I knew, I guess by that point, I knew it was a car because it was so big. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, like this, this, thing or this guy's going to hit me like no no car no bike had ever been that close to me while I was riding I just knew in my mind that this wasn't going to end well and I had recently gotten or purchased clip-in pedals and cycling shoes even though I was on my dad's my dad's hybrid bike I'd thrown aero bars onto there (laughs) and uh, so my legs had to contort in these weird ways. But anyway, I, I was hit um, from the left side and I had to get out of the pedals. I flipped over the handlebars. I smacked my head on the pavement. And that's one of the 
things I, I mean, the whole accident, those couple seconds were pretty much a blur. And after the aftermath as well, I was in a state of shock. Um, but I vividly remember smacking my head on the pavement. I remember hearing the sound of my head smacking the pavement or my helmet smacking the pavement. And um, rolled, uh, I don't know, 10 or so feet and just saw the car drive into the distance. Luckily, he eventually stopped. Uh, there were witnesses on the trail that ran to my aid and, and helped me out. And, um, you know, the, the cops or the park rangers were called, the ambulances, the ambulance was called and uh, ended up going to the hospital because I had nasty road rash. And I didn't know the extent of my physical injuries by that point because it was, I mean, I didn't get MRIs. I didn't get CT scans or any of those things yet. Um, but luckily I had no broken bones at that point. Um, and, uh, as this unfolded, um, you know, I, I thought I'd be fine. I'd, I'd shake it off and I'd be out there in a week or so because I just had road rash. And, um, then the concussion symptoms really started to settle in and I had played football growing up. I had been smacked pretty hard in games, but like nothing that had ever floored me like this did. Um, and long story short, I was out of work for four months with a concussion. And uh, yeah, I just, I mean, that was a very dark time because I had, I couldn't work out um, or I couldn't work. I, I physically, like my job, I was on short-term disability um, because I, you know, wasn't a conducive environment to be in front of multiple screens with numbers on them all day. Um, that's pretty much the opposite of what you want for a concussion. And uh, I was, I resorted to sitting in my room and sleeping 20 hours a day um, in the pitch black. And uh, it was a tough time to uh, both mentally and physically. And then I then, you know, as I saw doctors, I realized how severe some of my injuries were. I had tendon damage in both ankles and feet. I had ACL meniscus damage in both knees. I had torn my labrum and rotator cuff in one of my shoulders. Uh, I had severe whiplash um, from the impact on the pavement. And like I said, I was out of work for four months because of my concussion, because I my head was in so much pain. Um, and what that really resulted in was not only the time out of work, but about a year, uh, at least six months of concussion therapy, which sounds funny, but it's a real thing. It's basically retraining your brain to do some simple tasks or seemingly simple tasks. But when you're when you have a concussion, they, they seem very difficult. Um, and over a year of physical therapy, oh, well, after knee surgery, um, which I got on one of my knees. And uh, like physically, I was able to get through it. I, I mean, I knew I would be able to get through it, but what really hurt me was, what really hit me was the mental, was on the mental side of things. I had never been, I mean, yes, I'd, I'd had some things that have sank me 
low temporarily, like the death of the death of a loved one, but nothing that had really made me made me question who I was or what I wanted or what I could do, because I think as somebody who is more tight, hey, I've always been okay. Once I accomplish, I'm very goal oriented, and once I accomplish a goal, I just move on to the next thing, kind of without thought. And mm -hmm. this was the first time where I was, I didn't really have the ability to work or work out or dive into a physical or mental pursuit because I couldn't do any of those things. And I was forced to sit with myself. Yeah. And I mean, spend a lot of time in solitude and because I couldn't even journal, I couldn't even read, I couldn't listen to podcasts because that was too stimulating for my brain at the time. Um, so I spent a lot of time with myself, a lot of uncomfortable time with myself, and I sank into a depression. And uh, I mean, that lasted for, I mean, it, you can't really put a timeline on that, but um, I mean, I, I started seeing a therapist for the first time in my life shortly after my accident. And it's, and she's someone I still see pretty much every other week to this day and have for the last two and a half years. And it wasn't until like, I joke that it took getting hit by a car in order for me to slow down and try to prioritize things in my life. But like, that's literally what it took. Um, and the accident now, like I used to yell and I used to kick and scream and play the victim card and feel bad for myself. Why did this happen for me? Oh, if I only didn't go for that other lap around the park, this wouldn't have happened. Or, you know, if I went a little bit earlier in the day, this, you know, I wouldn't have gotten myself into this situation. But the bottom line is that it did. I, I can't change it. I have to deal with the situation that I'm in. And I always remind myself that you know, other people have it so much worse. And that wasn't for me to trivialize my pain or my trauma or whatever I was going through. Like, yeah, because pain is relative, trauma is relative. The worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Or the hardest thing you've ever done is the hardest thing you've ever done. It's different for everyone. But at the same time, that kind of helped. It was a reality check. I knew that I was struggling because I felt that this was one of the hardest things that I had ever gone through in my life. And that I, I remember going to my parents, and my brother, and my brother had, has, had been, I mean, this happened a couple of years ago now, but like my brothers and my family, I mean, mental health is something that's always been like, we've able to, we've been able to talk about in my family, thankfully because of my brother and some of the struggles that he's gone through. But I remember going to them and saying, guys, like, I, I think I need to see someone because I'm in a really dark place. And that wasn't easy for me to say, but it got to my anxiety and my depression got to such a bad point where I knew that I needed to do something about it. Like, like you don't, people don't change until it gets to a certain point. And I think pain is usually the thing that drives that. And I wish pain wasn't the thing that needed to drive that, but I think it's the thing that often drives that. And at least for me, and I was so uncomfortable that I needed to do something about it. And um, while I'm over the other side physically, 
I guess I'm on the other side physically and I've been able to race since, I mean, it's been a two year journey to get to the starting line. Like it took two years to get to the starting line of Atlantic city, but mentally I'm still, I, I still struggle. Um, and, and that's a practice. So I know that was a rambling response, but like, that's, that's kind of, I mean, the, the accident impacts me. I mean, I don't think I, I don't think about it every day now, but, um, I'm thankful for it in a way that I never would have thought that I would have been two and a half years ago when it happened. Yeah, that's, that's a crazy, it's crazy that it seems like such a short amount of time between when that happened and where you are today to have such a mature perspective on it. I just wanted to circle back to the one thing there. How long was it between when you knew yourself that you needed to see a therapist, like the length that it took you to muster up the courage to actually tell people that you needed to see somebody? It wasn't for months. Um, and it, it might've been months for a couple of reasons. One, because I was just so, I mean, in the beginning, uh, shortly after my accident, I was sleeping 20 hours a day. And then by the, a couple months later, I was sleeping four hours a night. If I were, if I was lucky because concussions just mess with people's brains in different ways. But, um, I think because I was, I was so focused on healing my brain and healing my body that it just things became so routine and the highlight of my day like during that was going to the physical therapist or going to my doctor so at one point I was seeing six different doctors and three different PTs for you know a leg specialist or I'm sorry a, a foot or an ankle specialist a knee specialist a back specialist a concussion guy and it was kind of exhausting um, but it is yeah it took months um, in order for me to kind of develop that awareness that I needed help. And I don't think I would have been able to step up unless I'd been in such a supportive environment that is my family or my house. Otherwise, I think I would have just continued to going, I don't know, I, I think, yeah, it I would have had a harder time being vulnerable if I wasn't supported by such a loving family. Yes. So you mentioned the dialogue around mental health with your family is, is, it sounds like it's a safe thing to talk about within your household. I guess, can you point out like a couple things that maybe your parents do or that your family does that I guess more or less makes other people around you feel like they're, you're going to hold space for them if they bring something like that up? Yeah. And I love that you use the, the phrase hold space because that's something that I think about a lot. Um, but growing up, my brother had, my brother Eric is three years older than I am. And he had bouts of anxiety and depression when he was in middle school, in high school, especially high school. Um, I, it was a tough period of his life where, I mean, he went to high school, he graduated, he has a degree, but he wasn't present physically for a lot of high school um, or at least a couple of years of high school. Um, and I remember 
I mean, there are so many, there are a couple stories that jump out, um, but like one moment in particular where my, my dad and my mom are yelling at him, trying to get him to go to school in the morning. And he's just refusing in bed, in bed curled up in the fetal position. Um, and my dad's throwing water on him. He's screaming. My brother's throwing stuff out his window and glasses shattering. And it sounds like a pretty, it sounds dysfunctional, but like, I just, I don't want paint, to paint such a bad lens because I had an amazing childhood and I wouldn't change a, a thing. Um, but I just, yeah, this one day in particular, I just remember my mom crying in the hallway, like looking at him, trying to, Eric, please go to school, go to school. And I was in my room, which was on the other end of the hall. And I was you know, 12, 13 years old. And I just, from that point, I remember saying, mom, I will, I'll never make you, I'll never cry, make you cry or disappoint you the way that Eric does. And I just remember putting, saying those words and I, it's it was now looking at that it's such an unfair thing to place like it's such an unfair burden to place upon myself but at the time I thought that was a reality that I could keep to or a promise I could keep to my mom and my family um I think my brother was seen as the problem child of the family um he was always the one that was causing he was more of I don't know he was obedient in more ways than I think I was traditionally, but um, like when my parents asked us to do something, um, I don't know, like just, he had a way of going against the grain and uh, marching to his own beat, which is a beautiful thing. But when you're a kid, it can be problematic, especially when, the school system, our, like our educational system wants you to go one way. And um, I think- it's a different that, time back then too, for sure. Yeah. Even though yeah. it was only like 15 years ago, 10, 10, 15 years ago, it was a different time for sure. Yeah. And I think it played, like, I think since that point, I've been placing this burden on myself to have these or to meet these unrealistic expectations. And the reality of the situation is that I was, they were all self-imposed. My mom never asked me to make that promise to her because she would never do that to anyone, never mind her own son or her other son, because it's not fair. And I just, I've, I've been holding, I call it the little, the little brother mentality. And I'm grateful for it because I, know it's made me the person that I am today, or it's helped develop me, develop me into the person that I am today. And it's part of the reason why I become so obsessed with things that I'm interested in or want to pursue, um, because I've always felt the need to overcompensate for some of my brother's shortcomings, or even when we were kids would, would have to keep up with him and some of his older, some of his friends in the neighborhood when I was three years younger and not as physically developed or mature. And I was physically, like I was just weaker. I was just smaller. Like I, I couldn't keep up. Um, so I think like s mental health has 
I mean, luckily my brother had been, I mean, he's been seeing a therapist, like different, different, I mean, he's been in and out of um, wilderness therapy programs and treatments. And uh, it's always been something that we have been able to talk about in my family. And I, I think that's, I think it should be more common to talk about. It's stigma, mental health is stigmatized in such a way and it's changing, it's evolving. I mean, we saw that with Simone Biles at the Olympics this year and um, Naomi Osaka, um, you know, speaking about their mental health and obviously they're professional athletes competing on the brightest of stages, but like even to the average person, like it's something that we should be able to talk about more openly. And I feel like a lot of people don't. And um, I, I it, being able to talk about it is or has been transformative. And uh, yeah, that's why I say like, I, I don't think I, I don't know where I would have been had I not approached my parents or my brother a couple of years ago when I knew I needed help. Because if I grew up in a family that, you know, stuffed their emotions, into a sack like I don't know where I would be so yeah and maybe I missed it in the answer but like is there a like how do those conversations come up like how, how do you guys I know you're practiced in it and it's going to sound like a rudimentary question but can you tangibilize like how you guys have those conversations or when you do it because I would argue for 98% of the people listening, they're probably in Kevin and I's camp where that is not normal or not a part of daily family or is not a part of the family dynamic. Just checking in with each other, I think is the most, I mean, it's simple, but not, it's so easy to say, oh, hey, how you doing? Like when you pass somebody on the street, you're like, oh, what's up? Like, how's your day gone? And like, do you actually genuinely, do you genuinely mean that? Like when you're, when you're checking out at Wegmans or Trader Joe's or when you're grocery shopping, whatever you're doing and you have an interaction, however small, or you're in an elevator with somebody and you're like, oh, hey, how's your day gone? You're like, oh, good. How are you? Like that's taken so casually and insincerely. And I think it's something that my family, since I was a kid had always taken seriously and genuinely. So it's, when you come home from school, it's like, my mom always wanted to know, it's like, hey, how was your day? It, like, how are you? Versus, oh, like, how did you occupy your time today? Just to fill a couple seconds of awkwardness in an elevator or while you're checking out at a grocery store. Um, so I think like that was something that was made obvious um, for me at an early age. Um, and in addition to that, I think we all work individually to be the best person. Yeah, I, we all work to be the best person that we can be as individuals. So there are daily practices that I, there are things that I do on a daily basis to like, I, my, my brother meditates, I journal, like whatever it is for that person, I think we do them and they all, they may be seen as selfish activities, but allowing like doing those selfish activities allows me to show up better in my relationships 
with my family. So taking an hour in the morning to journal or read or meditate or to work out allows me to show up and be a better brother. It allows me to show up and be at a brother, a better boyfriend. It allows me to show up and be a better son or friend. And um, I think that the more you have these conversations around mental health, the more regular, like you just have to have the conversation. And once you break the barrier, it becomes easier to talk, like each subsequent conversation becomes easier to have, but you have to create the platform to foster that. And I mean, it, I mean, we never, we don't have like a pillow that we hold or toss around or a ball of like a speak, like we don't have any, stack. <laughs> yeah, we don't have any of those things, but like we just check in on it with each other. It's like, Hey, can we, can we grab a couple minutes and just lay it on out there. And I grew up in a very vocal household. Like my, my parents, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for us to scream at each other and like we would get it all out lay it on the table and then 10 minutes later be like okay we would we would make up i'm sorry i said what i said i didn't mean it i love you you know i care about you and we would go on we wouldn't hold grudges and we wouldn't we would tell each other how we feel um and not hold anything in because we knew that that would just come out eventually and it would manifest in some other form probably one that wasn't as kind or um, good natured. So I, I love the mental health conversation, but I don't want to miss the fact of how important the accident was for you. Cause I do want to kind of jump back a little bit to find out a couple things about the accident and like the recovery a little bit, cause it's selfish. I want to know about it. Like you said, you went through some very tough times, like in those dark moments, what was your strength to move forward? Or what did you find as a driving or motivating force to get out of bed or, or move yourself in a positive tra trajectory? I just knew I didn't, I was just so uncomfortable that I knew that if I, like, I, I didn't know what was on the other side of that. Like if I kept going in this direction, I didn't know what I would find, but I didn't want to find like a rock bottom. I didn't, I just, I knew I was so uncomfortable that I wanted to get out of whatever I was experiencing in. So it wasn't someone or something. It was really just knowing that you didn't like where you were. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't, I, everyone that was around during that period helped me get out of that. But I couldn't have done it individually because like I, for example, like my dad literally drove me to every, or my mom or dad drove me to every single doctor's appointment because I couldn't drive. My dad, when I started returning back to work, I started on a part-time basis. And my dad literally drove me to work every single day and waited for me because I, I couldn't do that physically. And um, so, yes, there, there are people that helped me there and like that cannot be understated. But it was an internal, but it, it, but it was internal though, too, like just your mental. I thinking about 
getting back on the, like, I knew I wanted to get back on the bike. I knew I one day wanted to do a triathlon, but to think about myself, I don't know, I thought about a goal that scared me. And that goal was to get back on, I mean, at that point, I remember you and Brez registered for AC and it was something I was thinking about and I wanted to register for too. And I just remembered like, okay, like when this is all over, I don't know when that's going to be like, I'm going to do the 70.3 in AC. And I just told myself that. And I didn't, I had such a hard time thinking about what that would look like. And I, it would be, I mean, it was a while until I was riding and running regularly and swimming regularly, but I could just boil it down. Like I couldn't, all I could focus on in a given day was that task. So mm. whether it was being, it was being present for whatever I was doing in that moment. So if I was going to, if I was going into my second physical therapy session of the day, it was okay, this is, I'm going to be here for the next hour or two, and I'm going to give it everything I have. And no, it's not deadlifting 300 pounds. Like I was a year or two before it's not going for a 50 mile bike ride. Like I was a year or two before, but I'm going to give everything I can give to this physical therapy session or this concussion therapy session or this doctor's appointment and whatever I'm doing, just do it to the best of my ability. It doesn't, it doesn't have to, I didn't need to always be my best because I wasn't my best, but I always wanted to do my best in that given situation. And that changes every single day. Um, like profound. as endurance athletes, you know, like if you go for a best sustainable effort, like on, it could be like, like all out on one day could be a seven minute mile. On some days it could be a six thirty mile on some days. It could be benching two twenty five. on some days. It could be 200 pounds. It, it changes. So I just took a smaller approach and breaking it down into digestible daily actionable steps made accomplishing a daunting goal that was the AC 70.3 much more doable in my mind, or at least I could wrap my head around it. So what did it mean to you to cross that finish line? I mean, for people that don't follow you on Instagram, I think they could read your Instagram posts to figure that out. But I mean, what does it mean to you in words? It's hard to, it's hard to put it into words. I mean, I, there was so much wrapped up into that race that I, I mean, I was registered for it for, I mean, like, Kev, I know you had a long journey to cross your Ironman finish line because of COVID. And I know you were signed up for a while and Cole, and I know you wanted to do, I know you guys wanted to do one in April and then it got pushed. Like all of us have kind of been through, like, we've all had to work through some of those challenges, but like, I think especially the injury piece and the, like the comeback and what's really more importantly is like the mental aspect of it. But like to, I mean, to cross that finish line, it was just such a weight lifted off my shoulders that, I mean, I, I just told myself, it's like, okay, like you set a goal, I'm I'm like crying thinking about it, but like you set a goal two years before and to work literally every single day chipping away at something for something that seems so intangible in the moment to finally 
realize that and not only do it, but like do it the way you wanted to do it. I mean, I could not, I, I, I could not have asked for a better experience. Like, yes, there were things in the race that I could have done differently or things that I wished have wished that happened differently, but I, I mean, I was surrounded by the people that I care about most. Um, I mean, my family was there, my, both my parents, my brother, Eric, Hannah, Hannah's mom, brother, um, my buddy, Dylan drove up from Charlotte to watch the race, Max and Stark and uh, Dreyer and Chelsea came in from Philly and like, and my godfather who, my godfather and his wife like came in from New York. Like it was just, like I couldn't have imagined having a better experience. And um, like they, they have seen, like you mentioned my Instagram post, like they have seen the literal blood, sweat and tears that I poured into that. And like, I get, I, I get, I, I'm I'm just proud thinking about like all those physical therapy or concussion therapy sessions or going to those doctor's appointments thinking about, I remember like in my, I was seeing my shoulder doctor and I just keep going. I remember, I remember being in my shoulder doctor's office and telling him that I wanted to do an Ironman. And he was telling me like, oh, if you get the surgery, like you may never, like you won't be the same. Like I wouldn't recommend it and you might not have range of motion like all these different things and just like yeah like i'm i'm gonna do it i'm gonna be an iron man like that's what i'm <laughs> that's what i'm gonna do and like thinking he he thinking i was crazy i was like okay like i'm not doing this to prove you wrong i'm doing it to prove myself right like i know i'm capable of this and um and yeah not like you like i knew i was going i knew i was physically capable of crossing that finish line but in order to do it in the manner that I did was more important to me. Like I, like I didn't want to attach myself to some sort of time goal because so much of what happens or transpires during an event like that is out of your control. Like you, the weather, for example, um, or, you know, your wetsuit unzipping like mine did in like the, the beginning of the swim, like all those things happen over the course of a half hour, man, I don't know five six hours a full 12 plus hours a lot can go wrong and but a lot can go right and um i mean i was just overwhelmed with emotion by being surrounded by the people who are most important to me and uh seeing all of my hard work come together it just i haven't really been able to like i know i want to do other races or i've thought about other races but like I really struggled with digesting that the weeks after, as I know you, Colton, at least um, did after your Ironman. It's like a very, it's a very weird thing. It's hard to, it's hard to make sense of because it, it makes you realize, it makes everyone, like you, you realize you're so much more than, or you're capable of so much more than you thought. And as a result, you're a different person. And it changes 
what you think of yourself and the inner dialogue. I, I, I just want to say, dude, your emotion in that answer said it all. You said, I, I don't have words for it. And there really wasn't words, but your emotion behind the way you answered that is like, what's really important, you know? Um, and it's fucking amazing. I mean, I, I am so proud of you for how you showed up on that day. And I know every single person you mentioned and named off, like they are equally as proud of you and watching that take place. I feel like you just showed up for yourself that day, right? Like you mentioned it, you proved to yourself something that you were capable of that you thought two years prior couldn't be accomplished, bro. And it's like, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it was truly an amazing sight to even see objectively. And I'm, I'm speechless even hearing you describe what it was like for you. Um, What I, I don't know if there's a succinct answer to this, but I do really feel knowing you that crossing that finish line was a way of you being like, all right, I'm back in a weird way. I'm not sure if that's how you feel, but if it is, what is one of, you know, we, we say one, two, three, like what's one of your biggest pieces of advice from that chapter? Cause I honestly feel like you closed a chapter by accomplishing it in the fashion you did, like your time was the best out of all, all four of our friends who are pretty capable physically. Like you, you, you hammered that thing, dude. So you completed in what I would consider, you know, an a way to end a chapter of your life. So like, what would that, what would the biggest piece of advice you have, or, you know, your biggest reflection be from that period of time? Be here now. Be here now. So relate that back like to an experience. Sorry. Being being present for any given moment. Like even as small as this podcast, for example. Like when we booked this time earlier in the week, it's like, okay, let's block off at four four o'clock. We have this time on our schedule. It's like, okay. We have five hours. (laughs) But like from this time to this time, this is what I'm doing. And yep. that's all I'm focused on. And when I was recovering, it was okay. Just, it doesn't have to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect, but lose the expectations, abandon the timelines or what you think might happen. Because if your expect, if your reality, if the reality doesn't meet your expectation, you're not going to be satisfied. So either way, you're setting yourself up for disappointment, but dropping all of that, leaving your ego at the door and just showing up. And I have, (laughs) I think showing up, showing up daily is like, it's the bare minimum. Like, and sometimes it, it can feel like the maximum thing. Like on some days it's like, you're not motivated. You don't want to do it, but like showing up, just showing up feels like the win. And if you do that over time, you like it compounds and you eventually will reach your goal. But what's more important, I think, is showing up with intention. And there has to be like, is you have to have a why. And if you don't have a why, things can get very blurry. And, and it, it can be even a simple as as simple as going like 
I don't know, going into the pool and you're going to swim some laps and it's like, okay, every third stroke, I'm going to breathe. And it's like, that's what I'm going to work on today. It doesn't matter. It's different for every single person. It could be this North star and that's your guiding principle. And that's the thing that you set your sights set on, but like you have to distill that down into daily actionable things or else the goal just becomes too monumental to really digest and wrap your head around. Um, but I, I think, yeah, whatever you do, just be there for it. Be there now, be here now. And I got that, I got that from my brother and he, it's from a spiritual teacher named Ram Das. but like, that's where I first learned it. And it's just, whatever you decide to do, just be present and don't fight whatever is, just accept whatever is because you can't change it. You can only control your reaction or your response to a certain situation or stimulus. You can't control what other people are doing for the most part. You can't control what the world, the rest of the world is gonna do. You can only control your effort and your attitude. I dude, I wouldn't change a thing. That was an amazing answer. So, you know, this is the first time we're gonna do this, Adam Holes, but I know we have a litany of things we could continue to discuss, but we are going to, you know, end the show. But my challenge to you is I know you could talk about 1100 other things, dude, your Instagram posts, your LinkedIn posts said it, but like the world needs more of you, man. And the reality of the situation is your daily practices, how you show up in your relationships, your family life. Like you talked about selfish behavior. I think it's selfish that you don't share more of yourself with the world. Um, and I know you do it periodically on Instagram, but you message me, you weren't on my list of people that push me daily on Instagram. And candidly, I'll put it back in your court as a challenge that I don't think you post enough. So I appreciate the hell out of the time. And if you do want to follow him, because he's going to start posting in a challenge, he can't back down from a challenge. Um, IG at Adam K holes stands for Kilhaney, right? I know your I know your middle name. Um, <laughs> IG at Adam K Holes. And dude, I, I love I've, you, man. I have, oh, one God, thing, I have one thing before you before you cop cap this one off. I know you mentioned daily practices earlier in, in books. So uh one one book recommendation and one daily practice that you think everybody should add. Book recommendation, and I'm I'm often hesitant to write hesitant to recommend books because I mean, fiction or nonfiction, what, in what, like what eyes are, is this person? We're, we're personal development people. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't read, I don't read none of those fables, I unfortunately. Don't. I think I should probably. But. That's, the, that's the trap that I fall into because yeah. I've, I think I've read two or three nonfiction, or I'm sorry, I think I've read three fiction books in the last couple of years and I've cried at all three of them or reading all three of them. So I, I've make, I'm making it a point to read more fiction because it's easier to lose yourself. And it's like, they're just, there's something about them that is easy to digest and they're, they're light reads for the most part. But anyway, um, one book recommendation, uh, it would be the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And it's a Toltec wisdom book. It's short, but it's profound. And, um, the four agreements are be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Always do your best. 
and don't make assumptions. And they're very simple things. They're not easy to do, but um, putting them into practice, I mean, yeah, it takes time. Um, they're all practices, but uh, that would be the book recommendation. And then uh, the daily practice would be to spend time with yourself every day, whatever form that takes. Um, for some people, that's exercise. Um, I mean, my preferred method is, <laughs> I mean, I like my, my favorite hour of the day is when I get a chance to ride my bike. Um, but it could be meditating and it doesn't need to be a 30 minute silent meditation. It could be five deep breaths while your French press is brewing. Um, it doesn't need to be, you don't need to do these crazy things. It just needs to be small, little actionable steps, but spend time with yourself and understand, like just check in with yourself every day and try to tune out to the distractions um, and sit, yeah, just sit with yourself, be uncomfortable with yourself. Don't scroll Instagram. Don't instantly turn on music. Don't absorb all the news early in the morning. Just understand where you are. And uh, I think once you have a better understanding of yourself and that self-awareness develops, you can go out into the world and make more of an impact. We appreciate you, dude. Loved having you. We're probably going to have to do a round two. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I loved doing this. It was, it was a pleasure to sit down with you guys and uh, share some of my story. I would love to continue the conversation another time. Thank you. Thank you, my man. We enjoyed having you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Have a good one, man. Take it easy, guys.